gratitude then is 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 for little things. It's like you think of. Do you mean we have to feel gratitude to our parents? That that's something that Buddhism demands of us. That we, it's another thing. If we don't feel gratitude, we've got to feel guilty about. So that we we should be feeling something we don't feel. So then it gets into you know more kind of resistance when. When, when one says you should be grateful to your parents, then to a Western mind, it, 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 it puts you in the state of resisting it. Because it's another uh, authority uh, commandment that how you should be. You should be good, you should be moral, you should be grateful. And on and on like that, you should be honest. And all the shoulds. Uh, and then, uh, then we are feel frustrated because most of us know what we should be or how things should be. We know how our parents should be if they were perfect parents or we know how somebody else, our, our husband, wife, children, what they should be according to the ideals of uh, the, the, you know what is the very best and we can conceive of the best in our mind, we can we can create images of the best. But in uh, the awakened mind, the Buddha was pointing not to the best, but to the awakened state of a human individual, in which we can begin to recognize the way things are. And uh, the best is uh, sometimes things are uh, the best, but then. You can't sustain any conditioned experience at that, as a, like a peak moment reaches a peak. It's, it's at its best. Can't get better than that. And then it, but you can't stay like that. I have a game I like to play with the members of this community because, because they, uh, people love to complain about the weather. And so they, uh, you know, and, and some of the days you get here are, the best. So, so I, I point that out. You know, I say this is a perfect day. You know, when, when everything's just the sun is shining, it's warm. Uh, all the kind of flowers are blooming, and the sky is blue, and uh, the place is beautiful. You know, you, kind of, you know, and you think this is this is a perfect day. Pay attention to what's perfect. You know. So you can kind of make that a conscious recognition of, of a perfect day. But see, what you can't say, you can't, can you tell the English weather to stay like that? And it won't be, it won't obey. <laughs> it won't obey my commands. I've tried. Uh, but it has its own, own way of, of uh, living its, its cycles. So that's just the way it is. Well, that's a reflection, isn't it? It's, it's recognizing perfection, but not demanding it. It's, it's the it's ability to, to recognize what should be without demanding that from every experience or from everybody or from oneself. Because the minute we demand it and say, I want life to be, I want you to be perfect for me. I want the weather here to be just what I like and I don't ever want it to change into something I don't like. 
what is it? We're asking for the impossible. We're becoming little selfish, self-centered, uh, demanding tyrants, asking the impossible from everything around us. So the, but the awakened mind, say the Buddha mind, doesn't recognize that. Even the worst is Dhamma, uh, and the, not to mention the best. Gratitude then is, is like, you know, there's this lovely uh, expression of mudita when you practice, uh, when the sense of mudita arises in, in your life, which is a, called uh, sympathetic joy. And joy is, is uh, to me, is, is the experience of um, when, you, when something really happens to you uh, that you've, you've, you're not asking for it and you're not trying to hold on to it. You're, you're in no way trying to, to, uh, to um, you know, get something for yourself. And, ev and when it does happen, you you let it go. You don't you don't attach. So the minute when you attach, if you, you you then the joy is gone because, say, attachment out of ignorance, clinging out of ignorance, kills the thing that you you love. Or the joy of your life is 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 lost through attaching, trying to hold on to joy, joyful experiences, or loved ones. Or the experience of love, isn't it? When you when you fall in love, and and then you try to hold on to the person, you actually make it impossible for that love to be sustained, <laughs> because the uh, the the uh, joy in the in the relationship is lost the minute there's there's a uh, an attachment. I want this. I want you. I want you to be this for me. But this expression of mudita, it goes like this. I sympathetically rejoice in the uh, vast ocean, uh, inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. That's a Mahayana expression. They're very verbose. <laughs> Man, it, it does have that quality of, of hyperbole, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of over the top in a way. So it, it's, I sympathetically rejoice, and sympathetically rejoice, rejoicing is what. And sympathetically, these words, you know, it's for heart, sympathy is a heartfelt emotion, isn't it? When you sympathize, it's not, it's not an intellectual function. It's more like, I, I really, you feel something from your heart toward that person, you sympathize, and you sympathetically rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions. Inconceivably, you can't imagine, you can't conceive vast oceans, not just one ocean, vast oceans. And this is, this is Mahayana hyperbole. But it has a function, doesn't it? It's, 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 it's making our mind stop with, with just trying to measure things out in, in, in suitable amounts, but putting it into such uh, kind of extreme terms that our 
intellectual mind, our nitpicking mind, we have to let go of it. We have to just ride with these kind of exaggerated expressions. Vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since the beginning of this time. Good actions performed by conscious beings. This is not just human beings, is it? Dogs are conscious beings, aren't they? Uh, cats and fish and whatnot, they're conscious beings, so it's, it's not, and all the conscious beings that we don't even know about, that we, we, we never see or, or, or recognize. So it leaves it in this state of, uh, of this expression of, of kind of mind-boggling, mind-stopping, uh, ex, uh, way of using the English language to experience a kind of joyfulness in the fact that, that there are so many good actions, that the good actions of conscious beings are inconceivable. And it's vast oceans of them, beginningless time. There's no, there's no, you can't trace it back to say 10,000 years because beyond time, beyond anything. Uh, even before a human, uh, human beings as we know them came onto this planet. So in this way of, of reflecting, when we start looking at, at each other in terms of our good actions, because we're all conscious beings, and, and when we see each other in terms of all of you, all the good actions of your life, countless, inconceivably vast oceans of good actions that each one of you performed, or even put it in since beginningless time, that changes my relationship to you a lot, doesn't it? How I see you, how I, how I, want, how I conceive you, how I relate to you, then is, it's a sense of joy and appreciation and gratitude and uh, these kind of emotions arise where if I start thinking of all the terrible things human beings have done since beginning this time, then I think, uh, who knows how many what terrible things these people have done? Maybe <laughs> you get paranoid, you know, the mind gets suspicious, frightened, and fearful. <coughs> We have this, as human beings, we have the use of language and we have this retentive memory. And, and so it, 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 it tends to plague us. It, 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 it's like the Furies oftentimes in Greek legends, like flies that buzz around us all the time in our, our incessant thinking, our worrying minds, our guilt-ridden feelings, our obsessions with with whether people like us or don't like us, or whether we're success or failure. And, then, and so this is all from thinking. When you stop thinking, all that drops away. If you don't think, well, you don't worry. What's it? You have to, used to think to worry. And, and yet thinking, we can, we can many times wish we could stop thinking as an act of, of rejection. Or how to think. This is a great gift we have. This is one of the, the great gifts of our humanity, is that we do think. And so that thinking is a function, a valuable function, in how to think. 
how to use thought rather than just be develop habit patterns of thinking that obsess us and take us over. So in, the, in, uh, medita in reflective meditations, it's like bringing up the subject of gratitude. Now we're, we're thinking in a reflective way. We're not thinking, oh, am I really grateful or how grateful should I be? Or, or are my children grateful for, to me or do they, they feel ungrateful? Or, or, and, and that we start thinking about ourselves, about uh, whether we are grateful or people are grateful to us. Uh, just to get that feeling of gratitude, just be remembering something that somebody did for you. Like one thing your parents did for you that you really remember with gratitude. So that's the beginning, isn't it? Just to connect your parents with, with some one of one of those inconceivably vast ocean one 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 good action of that enormous amount of good actions so i think of you know i think of the uh say in my own case of my own parents who they died uh 10 years ago 1989 and uh and like well, most americans of uh, uh, and we're very, uh, we're brought, I was brought up, say, in the, when uh, Freudian psychology and, and uh, Jungian psychology was beginning to be quite fashionable. And everybody, we, we're into psychoanalyzing, and of course, uh, mothers, uh, say, back in the 50s, were the objects of everybody, everything, was, everything that was wrong with the world and made you li your life miserable was because your mother either loved you too much or didn't love you enough. <laughs> uh, so there's always, and you could always make a case for it. You know, so, so mothers were kind of focused for criticism. And now I need to be. I think it's very much fathers are in the limelight of criticism. It's absentee fathers and this kind of thing. So, so and it's not that mothers and fathers are beyond criticism. But if this is the only way we remember them, then then we're destroying our own lives. You know, there's something in us that is lost uh, because. Then we're only we're only admitting a certain aspect, you know, and we we can completely let that aspect dominate our conscious experience and forget only the good things, even if it was only one good thing. Even if our parents were were so bad, they only did one good thing. It still recommend being grateful for that one good thing. But that's not ever the case, is it? There's usually an enormous amount of goodwill coming from parents and, and love and care and dedication and self-sacrifice. I look back at my... Uh, I was born in the midst of the Depression in the 30s. Why my parents decided to have their, well, my sister and I were both born in the 30s, so 
She was in 1932, I was 1934. And uh, my parents had lost everything in the crash, 1929. And they were, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, they, were, they had enough to get by, but they, yeah, life was difficult. But my mother was getting into her 30s herself, so she was, was thinking, I can't wait too much longer to have a family. So my sister, my sister comes, and then I, two years later. My father wanted to be an artist, and uh, and he had to give up all his ambitions. To, and he became a shoe salesman. Uh, so he had to give up his, uh, you know, what he wanted to do, to in order to make a living, to support his wife and and children. And I think of that, I think, of, and then when I talked to him, he became, you know, he was successful, he became manager of a very smart shoe store, and was a very kind of skilled person in, in the business. But he never liked it, he never did what he wanted to do. And, uh, and yet he provided me with everything I needed, you know, clothes, food, nice house security, and uh, stable family life. Plus, my parents were, were very devout Christians, so they had a tremendous kind of moral stability. So I never, I never suffered from uh, that kind of uh, parents that were promiscuous or, or uh, even threatening. They never, uh, they never even threatened to separate. I never even heard them quarrel. Uh, if they quarrel, they must have done it when I wasn't around. Uh, so, so anyway, that, that, that I find out that's quite rare in most people's lives. <laughs> but yet, in spite of that, I could still, when I when I became entered university, and the fashion was to criticize parents. I I was very good at finding fault with them. And uh, so I managed to find things, you know, that, that uh, they could have, they should have done that they didn't, or I thought they should have done and that they didn't, or what my I needed and I wasn't properly respected, and and they weren't all aware of my my particular needs and and uh, lacked sensitivity to me as a as a kind of specially sensitive person. <laughs> it goes on. <laughs> to where, <laughs> where I can make a kind of, kind of valuable case against them, you know, and, uh, and can even convince you that I suffered damage due to my parents. But when I, but when I, but when I really look back, uh, even though, you know, one can see how, you know, in many ways uh, the the, uh, there was a lack of, of real kind of uh, understanding of each other. We were a proper family. We were not a kind of heartfelt family. We were, we were proper. We were polite. Uh, we were well-mannered family. And, and we were, uh, you know, very acceptable kind of people in the society, but 
we never develop great bonds. So, uh, so it was easy for me to leave when I was 17 and, and uh, live my life on my own terms, the idea of being independent. Well, that, that was a bit sad when, when parents got old because in some ways you felt, I, I felt I never really knew them, never really, really understood my own parents that much. So I didn't really take the time uh, to try to understand them. And then as, as you get older, then you, and you begin to see in your own life how people, younger people, they relate to an older person. Like an experience that I, I have sometimes of ingratitude and, and uh, criticism and blame I get from monks and nuns and things like that. Then you realize you can empathize with your own parents because I can see how they were you know, how in many ways they were doing their best and, and they weren't open to, uh, to any kind of reflective sense. But they were, they were, uh, they were good in themselves and then to rejoice in their goodness, to, to begin to, uh, find uh, this gratitude and rejoicing in the good qualities, then I, I find a sense of real uh, love and gratitude when I remember them now. When I think of my mother and father, I, I have this feeling of gratitude and, uh, and feel very honored and privileged to have had parents that, uh, that uh, before, say, I tended to look at through my critical mind. In Pali, they call it Katanyu uh, Gatsawaiti. This is Katanyu Gatsawaiti, is to be able to recognize uh, something for what it is. To be able to, to recognize the goodness. It's not like trying to uh, create uh, a kind of emotion around it. Uh, and, and convince yourself, but it's an honest, it's an honest reflection. It's, it's, a, it's a way of, of really um, bringing into consciousness the goodness of somebody, not through flattery or through exaggeration, but through an honest understanding and recognition. So it's, it's, it's not, gratitude isn't just, just going into a kind of paroxysms of, of flattering and, and carrying things to extremes, but it's, it's the real recognition of good things that you've received. Now in monastic life, uh, the whole monastic form, and Buddhist monasticism is based on this. We're uh, alms mendicants. So we have to depend on goodness of other people for our basic survival. Like, like when you look around you at this uh, monastery, this uh, this temple here is is was is is uh, is a gift. It was given, you know, 
wasn't something that, I mean, it was built on donations, on free will donations. Or the food, a magnificent uh, uh, food offering this morning. <laughs> uh, incredible banquet of the most delicious kinds of food is, is an offering uh, uh, given to the Sangha. And so we, we're not asking, we don't go around trying to say, demand these kind of things, uh, but the people offer them. And so these are, these are the quite kind of extreme expressions of, of good things given to us. But in the daily life, we, we reflect in very humble ways, like uh, we, we develop this sense of gratitude for just the roof over our head for one night. So, I used to train myself wherever I was. I look up at the roof when I'd go to bed, and I'd say, "So I'd say, thank you." You know, one night I've got this shelter from the uh, rain or the cold or the elements, and uh, think, thinking, or look at my robe and thinking, "This is grateful to have a robe uh, to cover my body for modesty or for protection." are grateful for uh, medical things given or the, um, uh, the, what we call the four requisites, food, shelter, medicine, and clothing. So you develop a mind of gratitude, something, a, a mind that feels uh, just an enormous sense of, of appreciation for what people offer. And because as a monk, I tend to see uh, the very good side of humanity. Because uh, what the life of a Buddhist samana is based on the goodness of uh, bringing out this goodness, of giving opportunities for good actions uh, in the community around. Uh, so then it, it has this, this, this and, and, and even in a country like here in Britain, you can see it is not a Buddhist country, and where Buddhism is an exotic foreign religion, it's still the goodness of the people here is is it comes out towards us. So that most of, say, my life here in Britain has been an experience of of incredible generosity and kindness and goodwill and support for my own spiritual life, because it's not just me uh, teaching you or me doing things for you, is it? It's, it's you're also supporting me and, and the monks, the nuns, the samanas, uh, for their spiritual development, so that they can uh, develop their spiritual qualities more and more and, 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 and dedicate themselves to the realization of the Dhamma. So it's a, it's a very beautiful relationship that the samana has with the, with the uh, lay community. This brings up this, this sense of gratitude. So in, uh, I remember when, when I first experienced Kitanyu uh, was, was when I was about, when after six years as a monk, and the first six years, I was pretty selfish, kind of monk, you know. I'm going to practice, and uh, I expect you to give me the food, provide me with a shelter, 
try and get get to the practice. Then, and there is, uh, you know, so living in Thailand, you know, you, the people were quite willing to help you in every way, so there was never any problem, you know, and the, uh, but you could take it for granted because there, the people were very eager to, to provide you with what you needed so you could practice. There wasn't like a, a hesitancy or a grudginess at all, it was just uh, an eagerness. So that it, one could even take it for granted that you, that you were giving them a good opportunity to make merit and uh, by supporting you. So you, <laughs> you could see it in terms of a totally self-centered way. But then within about six years enough happened and, and I could, and suddenly this sense of Katanya got the way to overwhelm me. And uh, I just happened to start thinking of, of the six years of my life as a Buddhist monk in Thailand and how that had been so well supported, how much had been made available to me, given to me, encouraged. Every, you know, I, had a, I felt I had a whole country, a whole nation of people who, you know, and I'm a foreigner. I'm not one of them. I'm, a, I'm an American. They're Thais. They're more than willing, out of their way, that I can be a monk and practice the Dhamma. And they want me to be enlightened. I'm sure every Thai person wants me to be enlightened. <laughs> and that's more than my parents wanted. <laughs> and my parents, I'm sure, would have been happy if I disrobed, got home, got married, and produced grandchildren. That's what parents want. They want grandchildren. But, but how many parents want their children to get enlightened, you know? So then I started thinking about, about that, about how all these people who, who uh, in a whole country, uh, a teacher like Ajahn Chah, uh, this whole kind of momentum behind me, uh, willing to provide me with food and requisite opportunities, teaching, everything, then it really put the the uh, the sense of uh, of gratitude. It brought out this gratitude, and I began to really want to to be worthy of that kind of generosity. So, in in the same way, it it, it, it kind of reflected my own kind of selfish conceit and, and self-centeredness, and, and I felt very kind of ashamed of myself when I started thinking of that. And then. Uh, uh, also, a, a strong determination to to be worth to make myself worthy of such uh, kind of generosity and confidence. Uh, so that that gave me a tremendous kind of um, strength in the life because because I I reflected on it enough. It's something you have to bring into consciousness. It it's not just going to happen if you don't try. But in, like in reflecting, learning to reflect, you, 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 one needs to bring things into your consciousness. That's just what the purpose of your life is. And like we reflect, like on the alms food we get, we, we reflect on it as being alms food given to us to, for uh, the health, maintenance of our physical bodies for the day, or uh, the, the place given to us for the night to sleep in. There's a the shelter given to protect us, 
given this this meditation hall, this uh, this temple as a as a place where where people can come and meditate, you know, where where I can come and meditate, where I can sit in here, in a in a in an atmosphere, and uh, environment that uh, that that gives me uh, that helps that it is conducive towards say peaceful mental state, towards mindfulness, towards uh, insight. Here in, in uh, the UK, you know, I think of the gratitude I feel towards this country. So, so then you, you think, I've, you know, just the fact that, that I'm allowed to live in this country. Uh, and and then I'm allowed to be a Buddhist monk. There are no problems being a Buddhist monk in this country. And uh, the fact that uh, they, uh, you know, they respect uh, all these different religions, the, the government, the society, and so forth. So that you know, I'm bringing up the, what I'm grateful for, the gratitude I feel towards the country I'm living in. Where so much um, modern life here in Britain is 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 an endless complaint, isn't it, uh, uh, about what's wrong with this country, and and people are so aware of anything that goes wrong or isn't right, uh, it you know it makes the news immediately, and and so many and and so much emphasis is placed on on a kind of cynical picking apart in and weaknesses of the leaders or of the royal family or the an endless kind of obsession with what's wrong and 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 what's wrong with Europe or what's wrong with the United States or on and on like this. So we we develop this 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 negative mental state all the time, this this picky kind of mind that that then is no longer a mind that experiences joy. It's not, it's joy is lost in, a cyn in the cynicism of the mind, isn't it? All you can, all you can do is, is get increasingly more depressed and, and feel uh, just a kind of despair with Britain or with human condition, with the planet. Now this is not trying to, uh, say, just live on a pink cloud of po positive thinking uh, in, in terms of not kind of ignoring what is wrong and refusing to, to acknowledge that there's something wrong when there is. It's not that that I'm doing because uh, it's important to be able to see what is wrong, to have a discriminative awareness, to, to know when things aren't right or when they're wrong or when they can be improved. This, this is not a, uh, a rejection of that function, but it's, all, but it's the development and the cultivation of mental, uh, a, a mental training uh, to deliberately bring into our consciousness the good things of our life. Because this then gives us a sense of joy and gratitude which are states uh, important for spiritual enlightenment. 
n a cynic never will get enlightened just by you know just by putting life down or that all you do is become more increasingly aware of what's wrong and 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 there's always enough wrong any with any place and anybody that you can always find more uh so it it's 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 an endless uh, when you start really looking for what's wrong with it, with even with yourself it it get, it seems non uh, non ending you know because uh, the mind will uh, can always find something more some defect something that is that would be better if it were otherwise or shouldn't be so it's it's also to counterbalance that tendency extremely skillful to reflect on what is right what is good what is beautiful in our lives the kindness of humanity the goodness of the people we live with the good things they do which is not ignoring uh the the bad things that they might do but you see with thought you can the, the ability to think you if you bring in one thought then it cancels out another so if you're thinking of what's bad about somebody then then the mind starts looking uh, it gets uh, influenced by this sense that this person has done something wrong and then the thinking process that comes out of that thesis uh, follows accordingly then you start seeing all kinds of things they've done wrong uh and and so because the the mind is kind of primed with this with this one word they wrong or bad and then then the thinking process tends to uh take off from that when you do it the other way you think of this person is good then you, you then you start recognizing their good qualities the, the 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 kindness or the the good things that they have done that's a really really interesting to to when um, when uh, Pol Pot died in 1997 uh I was in uh, India at the time I was in Darjeeling living in this I was uh, having a meditation retreat in a tea garden uh up in in uh, the hills in Darjeeling so and the the manager of the tea estate had had built this very lovely new guest house and i was the first guest in this guest house it's a very nice place with beautiful views and uh uh and they had i lived on the first story and on the in the kind of lounge below was a television set and he had it tuned in to the uh bbc world service so uh every once in a while i go down and i look at bbc were the news on on bbc and so this is where i became aware of the death of pol pot and uh and and i'd been to cambodia the in 1996 so i'd spent a month uh in uh, phnom penh and anger watten places in cambodia so I, i was very familiar with with the feelings you know with the with the atmosphere uh, with that one could become aware of within a month of this uh, of this uh, nation that had been uh com com traumatized where a whole nation of people 
had been brutally traumatized and were still uh, traumatized, even after, I mean, this ha Pol Pot was, uh, was in the late 70s, wasn't he? 76, 77, and that when they, when they did, when they performed the genocide in Cambodia. So I visited this, this high school where they, this uh, Toulon slang or whatever, where they had, where they, you had tortured people and they have all these photographs and went to the place, museums with the piles of skulls and bones and all the kind of monuments to atrocity and to brutality uh, and to, uh, uh, that, that is all in the minds of most people blamed on this one person, Pol Pot. And and that that he is the collective uh, uh, the uh, the the scapegoat for all of that atrocity. It's uh, it's in the mind of both. I mean, I don't know so much about Cambodians themselves. They that that word is definitely uh, uh, one that brings up strong emotional reactions. But in the eyes of the world, also, isn't it? We all see Pol Pot, and we think of a. Uh, of a, of a monstrous tyrant. And yet, when you hear people that actually knew Pol Pot, they said he's quite a gentle person. Uh, they had clips of him being interviewed before he died, on, and he, he was, he looked very like a very unhappy and very, uh, but not, but he didn't seem like, he didn't have horns, sport tail, he seemed to have a, a gentle quality about him. And uh, he'd been a temple boy when he'd been work as a, a, a dekwat, a temple boy when he was young in a Buddhist temple. He was brought up as a Buddhist in a very kind of lovely culture. Cambodian uh, culture is, it has, a, has a grace and an elegance and a, and a beauty to it. Uh, a very kind of cultivated, cultured country before the Khmer Rouge. So then, the, then, the, then the, the whole destruction of this, where you where you go now, is it's it's almost been totally destroyed, and uh, all the artisans, the the intellectuals, the middle class, the 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 monastic, the monks, uh, you know. About two thirds of the monks were murdered. Then the rest were forcibly disrobed. Temples were destroyed. Buddha rupas were destroyed. And and people were forced to work as slaves and so on. You think it's absolutely the worst thing, the nightmare that that you can possibly conceive of. It actually happened there. And so then my my challenge was. I sympathetically rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since the beginning of this time. And then I looked at Pol Pot. And uh, my mind, of course, uh, refused to think of that he could have done anything good. Uh, there was a rebellion there that, that he's so bad that he's beyond the pale that nothing he's ever done that needs to be recognized other than he should be punished, he should be, I mean, you know, he should 
be punished by what he's done. Humiliated and maybe even tortured like he tortured others. And so this kind of mind of revenge arose and, and this uh, anger and wanting to get even. And I thought, that's not a mental state I want to cultivate. Because that's exactly what motivated the Khmer Rouge, isn't it? Just their imaginations against a middle class, the way they, they idolize some kind of communist system but that they would achieve uh, this kind of pure state of a real Cambodian, real Cambodian, untainted, untainted by anything European whatsoever or anything outside that isn't Cambodian. You want a pure Cambodian communism. So if you could speak French, you were murdered. They said, if you wore spectacles, you were murdered. If you, <laughs> I mean, they should have murdered Paul Paul because he could speak French. <laughs> but they don't tend to do that. They don't start with themselves. <laughs> but they, but then, Contemplate the this this indignation, the anger, say of of that one can carry about wrongs of the past, about how they did something wrong, about how they did this to me, how they destroyed my family, my country, my life, and then that that resonates in the mind. Then you just become enraged, isn't it? You get angry and you want to seek revenge. So then training, taking the strength to really contemplate, trying to be grateful for the good actions of Pol Pot's life, because at that moment he was being cremated. Uh, he was in a very remote part of Cambodia near the Thai border in a really grotty place, and he was cremated on a pyre of rubbish. They had old kind of truck tires and and things like old mattress, the mattress that he died on and the, the kind of old bamboo chair they throw on top of him and it's like kind of this 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 man who who had uh, you know originally wanted to bring Cambodia to a kind of point of perfection, idealized perfection, uh, a, a pure state of communism that is pure Cambodian. Is a, is a it's a it's an idea in the head. It's imagination. It is can't. It's an impossible thing. But it it propelled this man to go to those kind of extremes. And yet also, to to recognize to to, to try to conceive, bring into the mind his good the goodness of his life, when everyone else was, clapping their hands at his death or thinking he got off too easy, thinking good riddance to a monster or things like this. So I thought, maybe I'm the only person on this planet right now that is rejoicing in the goodness of Pol Pot's life. And uh, I'm sure that's going to anger some of you, just the idea. <laughs> but it's, it's a challenge to the mind, isn't it? To me it is. Because it, it does start getting me to to look at something in a different way, to to you know, we're much better when when people do rejoice in our goodness, aren't we? We rise up when somebody 
kind of thanks you or appreciates you or feels grateful for what you've done, it, 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 you feel it, it gives you encouragement in life and it, it gives you uh, a happiness that you don't feel if you're just getting a barrage of, of uh, negativity and, and uh, endless uh, kind of fault finding. And it's, it's just noticing in myself, like the um, being self-critical, for example. There's a critic in me that, that uh, has, uh, has that is relentless. Uh, this critic, it doesn't. It's so uh, that even when I do something absolutely fantastically good, it will say could have been better. This is a real wet blanket kind of habit I've acquired. And it's not a problem anymore, but it used to be. It was a real killjoy, a real downer, because it, it was, it, you could never satisfy it. it. No matter how good you were, or how successful, it would say, well, don't, you know, don't let it go to your head. Or, you know, you get uh, King of Thailand. I got a, an honorable title from the King of Thailand. And said, immediately said, well, don't get a swollen head over that. And then, uh, then, it, then somebody says, Ajahn Sumedho, you really gave a fantastic talk. That really, the inner critic would say, no, it wasn't all that good. It should have. <laughs> so then... Uh, this, this, this self-criticism is like a, a, a mental habit. So then I started rejoicing in my own goodness. And so this like, like I mean this, uh, this uh, if we're in an English uh, setting, this sounds a bit uh, embarrassing actually, because English people would never think of rejoicing in their own goodness. But, but it is a... <laughs> This is a good th thing to try, because uh, it does it does give you a it it helps you develop a, a balanced sense of appreciation for yourself as a human person, and it's not being dishonest. I'm not inflating myself by building myself up into some something wonderful, but it is an honest looking at the good things of my life. And then I find, of course, that most of my life has been very good. That actually, the bad things are, are, are definitely in the uh, you know, uh, lower percentages, not in the higher ones. And why, do you, why would you want to be a monk if you're bad? Because there's no way. I mean, to be, uh, you know, when you, when you Willing to live a celibate life and live in the restraints of Vinya and Buddhist monasticism, I mean, you have to be a fairly good person to even consider it <laughs> as a, as an option, you know, because it 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 doesn't encourage badness in any way, doesn't encourage that 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 side of oneself. So then, in but it's not to to kind of promote oneself as being you know, being better than anyone else, but uh, an honest w consideration and recognition of 
the goodness of one's life. Because, you know, all of you love the good. When you ask yourself honestly, what you really love, isn't it, is you love the good. You love the true, you love the beautiful. And, and maybe you become tempted or fascinated by the opposite, but that's not what you really love, that's not what you really want when you, when you rea really understand yourself. And so this is, this, is, this is being human, isn't it? This is our humanity, this is the goodness of our humanity. So on this special day of gratitude to parents is to offer this as a reflection for you to, to use both towards yourselves, towards your family, your uh, people you work with, the society you're in, and the, uh, also the, just the, towards your parents, the grandparents, and, and on and on like this. And it, and it does give you, will, will enhance the day for you and uh, begin to maybe enjoy your humanity a little more. So I offer this as a reflection. So yata mani jodira so yata sapitiyo vivachantu sapparo ko vinasatumate bhavat vantarayor sukitikayukopava abhivatanasili sanichang vatapachayino Jataro Dhamma Vatanti Ayuvano Sukhang Palang. So there's tea in the in the sala, the building over there, and then uh, in say uh, half an hour, if you're still interested, you can come back uh, ask your questions. I'll be here. <laughs> Yeah, that's what she's, she's done. And she was really, she got really, really terribly deformed. But it's all, it's kind of, uh, she, and, and it looked like she was dying actually from it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, she she sometimes uh, she she's very kind of uh, when you know when you weren't when she thought you weren't looking, then you she you you know she sometimes you when you were kind of looking at her when she wasn't aware, you know sometimes she looked like she's in absolute agony, but then when you looked at her, then she smiled this radiant smile and looked like nothing was wrong, you know. And you could you could totally get the wrong impression, really. Sometimes you weren't aware of how much pain she was enduring, because when she's actually relating to me, she always bright and happy and chirpy and... 
<laughs> so are there any questions? It's like you learn to, when you first start, you have to accept your emotional resistance to it, or your own reaction, like, like say, uh, I remember there, you used to teach like, well, meta practice, where you start, may I be well, and, uh, and that always irritated me. You know, I, I I didn't mind spreading metta to someone else, but somehow this may I be well, and they bring up this kind of uh, cynical feeling, and and then one monk used to teach uh, t t teach about saying to yourself I love you. Uh, ooh, that's really revolting, you know. So so I remember trying to do that, thinking, saying to myself I love you. And then, and then, then I'd feel this. You don't like that. So then, then I, I would acknowledge this reaction. I'd totally accept my reaction, uh, like my aversion to that. And by doing that, and the more I did that, then the then the negativity stopped, and then I could actually say that and mean it. And also, you had to know what you mean by love. You know, not. It's not like, you know, uh, a kind of obsession with, with you, you know, narcissistic kind of thing, but I mean, it may, you, know, you have to define it for what you really mean by, by that word. You love such a, a word that you use for almost anything. <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but when you define it like more like, like an unconditional love, which isn't, has nothing to do with liking or approving, but totally accepting something for what it is, you know, without, without uh, making any criticism, just totally accepting, unconditionally accepting something for what it is, uh, and no matter how bad it is. Uh, then you're getting down to what unconditioned love really is. And so, but as I, as I began to totally accept even my negativity, my own emotional aversion, and and kind of cynical reactions, then they would cease. And then what was left was I could actually say that to myself and feel a, a sense of 
that that was you know a, a wholesome state. Or with, like with Pol Pot, I had to accept what the resistance to it, like uh, trying to think of, conceive of Pol Pot having done uh, some good acts in his life. An incredible resistance to it. Because emotionally one was so primed to just, you know, didn't want to admit that he could have ever done anything worthy or worthwhile or, or anything that he had done you could dismiss and say, he didn't really mean it or, you know, you know just dismiss his, his good actions uh, uh, by, because your, your soul, your mind so primed, so fixed with this aversion pattern. And so that needs to be made conscious too and, and accepted. Then, then it is, uh, it is um, possible. But it's not like trying to, it's not, it doesn't, I mean, it might sound like I'm just saying you should think of all the good things Paul Pot. I don't know of any good things he ever did because nobody ever talks about that. <laughs> but I, <laughs> the, the, the news about Paul Pot never about that he's done anything good. Uh, but, you know, being a temple boy and uh, knowing Cambodia and, and uh, you know, just the fact that, you know, sometimes, you know, like being a communist is, comes from a very good place, you know, some kind of desire to help the poor or, or re resolve the unfairnesses in an old class-ridden society or something. And it comes from a good place, basically, you know, desire for justice and fairness and things like this. And then it gets distorted through, you know, th like, like if you don't use wisdom with it, like he didn't, he didn't, he didn't use any wisdom. I mean, this is what's so, uh, so quite uh, mind-boggling is that having come from a Buddhist country like Cambodia, he didn't, didn't really, the law of karma never really uh, <laughs> registered in his mind, I'm sure. I mean, because li like the, the thing is, you know, is the law of karma is you can't get a good result through bad means. I mean, where communism doesn't have that. Communism thinks you can kill off the aristocracy, murder the czar, uh, get rid of the rich peasants, um, and, then, and then get a good communist system going when you've kind of cleaned up the whole mess. It doesn't work. You know, in a way that's you, you get tyranny, you get fear, because those very conditions of murder and uh, very, you know, the karmic result of murder is to create fear. And you're not creating a society, you're not creating conditions in a society where, say, the good side, where you want to share your wealth, where you, where you want to uh, help raise the, the poverty, you know, the people that are poor up to a, uh, raise their standard of living or things like this. It just creates this, the, the worst, that brings out the worst uh, conditions in human, in human behavior, fear and, and, and that. So when you're having like a police state and a secret police and a, and a Gestapo and a kind of, well, you know, your your whole knock on the door at midnight and all this, and 
and all the rumors. I mean, you just create, you, you know, paranoia everywhere. How can you ever get some ideal communist system from that? And yet, the, the ideal is good. You know, it's not, it's not, I don't object to the, to the ideal of it. But this is where, where in Buddhism, the, the emphasis on means is so important. How, the means you use to do something. So where the other is, the end justifies the means. In the Buddhist sense, law of karma is the the means is is the end is the result of the means. So if you have a bad, if you use uh, evil means, then you get an evil result. And uh, and that's I think when I've observed how things work, that's how I see it. I don't see that I. If I do something bad, it, in order, to, even for a good goal, that, that, that the good goal ever manifests. <laughs> I've not experienced that. Because e even like if you tell a lie and in order to get something, even if you get, even if you get what you want and nobody knows that you've lied, you do. <laughs> So that lingers, you know, you can't get away from it. And then if you're, you're going to live your life, human lifespan is not very long, so it, you know, you, this is where young people need to consider. <laughs> Actually, it's not a very long time that we live, so it's not worth, you know, kind of wasting it. That I mean, when you're young, you think you've got you know so much years ahead that you you sometimes don't realize you know, you know how brief life really is. So you you don't really think it's important or kind of morality and and all this thing. You think kind of things are not terribly important when you're young because what like to enjoy life, have a good time, and and uh, experience things. And then, and uh, and so, and then the process. One can, you know, get so caught up into, into doing things uh, that that you really that that you really regret and bring a lot of remorse, guilt, and paranoia into life. So that's where, like in with, with Buddhism, this law of karma is. Is such a valuable teaching, cause and effect, and uh, just because it does, uh, and it does create this sense of well, you know, if I think I can do something bad and get away with it, I'll do it. But if I know the law of karma, then then I think I, if I do something bad, then I get a bad result. Well, that that's a stronger sense of uh, well, it's not worth doing, not worth doing it. It, because the result will be bad anyway. You might get a momentary thrill. <laughs> I mean, but in the in the end of the at the end of the day, the result will be will be un will be unwholesome. Did you have? A
Well, you know, it's, it's not just him, but he was, you know, like he, he picked up his ideas in France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he went to study in Paris. <laughs> he didn't get them from Cambodia, but uh, he, he did, uh, you know, in, in that generation, uh, especially colonialism, you know, would, would breed this uh, rebelliousness. Because, uh, you know, like, like uh, any kind of colonial power, then, then it, uh, it has this, uh, you know, it has this uh, effect on a, on a, on a country of, of oppressing it, or making them feel oppressed by it, or feeling inferior, as if they're you know, racially inferior, or, or, you know, step below the rest. And, and so they, uh, and so it naturally brings up rebellion, uh, revolution and rebellion in the minds of youth. And then they go and study in, even though it was a Fr French colonial, a French colony at the time of Camp Pol Pot youth, uh, he went to study in Paris. Well, in Paris there's all kinds of uh, revolutionaries, you know, around in the 19, early 1900s, 1920s and so forth. So. So and they're all kind of cockeyed, crazy theories, and you you read about uh, just in in Europe, you know, after the First World War, this uh, kind of madness of all the different kind of political theories that were going around, from Nazism to communism, and and people really thought that uh, various levels of socialism and and the, and the you know. So many different variations on the, on themes of, of of trying to create perfect political systems, or nationalist movements, things like this. So uh, then he he would get involved in the, in those, and then often, and then you think back maybe to the time when you were a temple boy, and you think well those you know I was pretty stupid and the monks didn't really know anything about anything and. And and you can really feel, you know, that your culture's been humiliated and and that you've got to get rid of the foreign influence, get into this kind of righteous indignation, which is very blinding. Like, you, you, if, you, if you suffer from righteous indignation, it, it completely blinds you because you feel you're right. So you lose all perspectives. <laughs> and 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 then you 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 do things out of your sense of being right that are terribly wrong, and and so it's it's very until you have like the 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 Buddha emphasizes this awakenness of the mind, not taking a position of being right, but of awakening the mind. So it's not like Buddhism tells you what's right and what's wrong, and then you. You try to conform to what Buddha says, but you notice he does, he he gives you guidelines, gives like precepts, moral precepts. He doesn't give you moral commandments, like five precepts. They're guidelines. They're not commandments, like from God. There, you have to ask for them, and you and they and they're used for mindfulness, not for for identification and clinging. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so then the whole Buddha's e emphasis is on awakening the mind, taking responsibility, seeing the causes of suffering, and and how to let go of those causes. So then, uh, where say idealism tends to take positions, uh, and when you when you take a position with an ideal, what happens is then you just see the the opposite as uh, the enemy. Because like, like mindfulness gives you a kind of whole. It, it, it incorporates everything. So the good and the bad, right and wrong, are, are included. They relate to it together. They're not polarized. But when you start thinking and you see thought is reality, then you polarize everything. Because the nature of thought is linear. You have to A, then B, then C. And and so your 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 mind thinking mind is limited to just one thing at a time, and so the 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 logic and the kind of perspective one gets through thinking tends towards polarization, towards one side opposed to the other. Where intuitive awareness is where the mind is is sees the complementariness, the yin yang kind of Taoist reality, or the Conditioned and the unconditioned, or the the uh, you know the complementariness of opposites, rather than seeing them as opposing each other. So so then uh, then in in Buddhism, the aims to 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 balance to to is the middle way to see the complementariness and balance, rather than to take a position on on the on the on the, on the linear spectrum and and then then live your life always in terms of seeing the enemy as as opposed to you and and so like communism does that western idealism is it tends towards that um, Christianity easily drifts into that you know seeing the devil and the and the uh, and the evil as a force you've got to get rid of it but I mean then, but then when you really look at uh, is Christianity more profoundly than just oftentimes the fundamentalist views, then it's not like that, you know, it's not that way. But it, but when you get into kind of fundamentalist interpretations, it tends to, to be you know the good are here and the bad are there, and you and you fight and you resist and you get rid of the bad. Where in, in. Uh, in say in mystical experience or the mystical forms of religious experience or meditation, you're embracing good and bad because you're you're using a, a transcendent ability of the mind to an intuitive ability of the mind that includes rather than divides. So the intellect, it's it's very divisive. Because you're always seeing this is better than that, this is right, this is wrong, and the logic that comes from that is very, uh, you know, very convincing. You can make a good case for killing the heretics. Now, I'm surprised at Islam. It absolutely boggles my mind how they, they can, how rigid it can condone uh, killing heretics or apostates. That really baffles. 
<laughs> I can see how you want to. <laughs> But I can't see how you can justify it in the name of religion. Like, like the Salman Rushdie Vatmona. I just couldn't get my mind around that. How, how you could... I mean, I could see how some fundamentalist fanatic could do that. But, but in the name of a whole religion, which was, was being done through, you know. And not hardly any... I don't know of any Muslims that came to say otherwise. The ones that did were murdered. There was one imam in Belgium that stood up against it and he was killed. Mm. But like in, in uh, this is what, what always uh, impressed me with, with the metta practices in Buddhism was, uh, you know, I used to, uh, used to <laughs> when I first started practicing metta, and they say, the, you know, the Lord of Death, uh, they, <laughs> you know, you're spreading metta to devils and the Lord of Death. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the logic of that is, you know, you kind of feel, uh, why should you spread metta to them? But in the, but in then then metta is unconditioned love. And and then and then it, it's you're realizing it's it, that that evil is empowered through uh, through hating it. So so like like evil forces get incredible power through making you hate them. And so the, because when you really hate something. Then it has power over you. If I can, if I can make you hate me, I have a lot of power over you. If I make you frightened of me, I, I, I have power. I can manipulate you. Uh, if I, if I make you hate me, then you're going to think a lot about me. <laughs> so your mind is actually dealing with, you know, with, 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 uh, with a lot of. Hatred and anger, uh, and and so that gives me power. You know, to, if I if I'm an unscrupulous person, uh, I can I can use that. But in but in so in in with metta practice, you're disempowering evil, not through through hating evil, but through understanding it. So it's like it it doesn't have power to delude you when you recognize it. So like in, in the, the Buddha's, uh, like in the scriptures, the suttas, uh, you know, after Buddha's enlightenment, then there's stories about Mara, the tempter, thinking, I'm going to go and see if I can delude the Buddha, if he's really a Buddha. <laughs> and so he goes and tries and says something. <laughs> And the Buddha says, "I know you, Mara." So it's like this is very, this is very uh, contemplate this. This knowing Buddha didn't say, "Get out of here, you no good so and so," or or hit him over the head with a sword or anything. It it just, uh, "I know you," 
And Jesus did that. When Jesus had been tempted, you know, and the devil came to on the cliff. Why didn't the devil just push him over the cliff? I mean, why didn't Jesus just push the devil over the cliff and get rid of him once and for all? He says, stand behind me, Satan, I know you, you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not killing. Because then if you killed the devil, then the devil actually wins. You know, that's the irony of it. That's why burning witches or killing apostates doesn't work. You never purify religion by killing the, the heretics. You're, 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 <laughs> you're doing something worse than the heretics to the religion. Any more questions? Yes. I sympathetically rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. Got it? <laughs> Yeah, it would really be unfair, wouldn't it? One slip and they get <laughs> <laughs> Just at the death moment, you start thinking negative thoughts. You end up in hell. <laughs> but it is like the death process is very much like, like when you're with people that are dying, they do, they do uh, you know, it's a it's an ongoing kind of th things come up into consciousness. So they they live through a lot of uh, anger, resentment, guilt, and that like when helping somebody to die is is kind to guide them through that. So that by the time they do die, they've kind of uh, liber liberated their minds. They need that kind of help, you know, to kind of free the mind from maybe a lifetime of, of just suppressed feeling and, and uh, anger, uh, regret, things like that.
and some people like you often, you see older people oftentimes reverting to very childish emotional habits. Like, like my father, he, he became increasingly more childish and he died at, and he was about 91. And he, he was always a very kind of, um, you know, I remember him as a, a man that always seemed in control, you know. Um, very good at organizing and and uh, in the world and kind of uh, getting things done and a man that you know really could could work hard get things done be in control and and then uh, in the last ten years of his life it was like a hell realm because he he lost control he lo he couldn't walk. He ended up so he couldn't even move. He became totally paralyzed. He could just, he could eat. That's about it. And then just lie there. And we had to feed him. And he could move his eyes. And he'd lost complete control. And he was so angry, humiliated. And, uh, and sometimes you go see him and say, I'm really angry with God. Is he a Christian? They why? He says, because last night I asked God to take me. I wanted to die, and He didn't do it. <laughs> and then he'd, he'd pout, and he'd you know he'd go through all these kind of very child temper tantrums like little boys have when they're three or four years old, things like this. You know, but by the time he died, I wasn't there, but they, I think he'd worked it out. He died quite peacefully. And, and, and it was right. When he died, he was ready and, and at peace with himself. And, and it expressed gratitude to, to people and wasn't just, before he used to just blame people for everything. So that, that was very nice, to, to, you know, very comforting to see, to, to hear. But, you know, you couldn't help but just anguish over the, you know, the poor man was just uh, totally humiliated at the end of his life. Because he'd become so proud and he wasn't reflective in any way. And he had to learn more or less through be just being pushed to the limits. So in one way he, he, he did learn. I feel he did learn from it. But you know, to me, I think it wouldn't. I think I want to learn all that before I get to ninety. <laughs> Try to, because <laughs> I can see. You know, I became aware, and in, 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 you know, when, when I was before I became a monk, when I was thirty, um, how immature I really was. Now, now here's a thirty-year-old man. But underneath that is very is still a very childish person. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and that that's where like like meditation has helped to bring all that up. Like being a monk, it brings up everything. You know it's the f having to 
just say no to things. You know, if you're a kind of greedy, lustful type person, then it's just learning to limit yourself. It takes quite a bit of effort <laughs> to, to do that. And then, then, uh, then to, uh, um, you know, in, in living in a community, you, you have to, uh, people, you know, you, you, you have so many different reactions to different people. So you feel threatened by this one, or this one really, you know, exasperates you. Or, you know, you go through different emotional reactions to them. And, and then you can say, or, you know, you can, tendency is to say there's something wrong with them. But you don't really, that's not what you're interested in, what's wrong with them, but why you're reacting to them like this. So you start looking at the reaction rather than than just seeing the, the, the causes from some uh, something outside you. So you're, you're getting to kind of tune in to where it all starts, which is in here. I think, you know, the idea of a perfect monastery where you, had all this, you have this perfect forest monastery. Uh, when I came to England, I thought, established this perfect forest monastery. I imagine little cooties out in the forest and uh, a nice meditation hall and, and uh, good support and, and reasonable people, you know, were dedicated, uh, uh, inspired and uh, committed monks and nuns. Onward together, comrades, to the goal of Nirvana. <laughs> and then you, you find, you know, it's kind of the ideal. Then you, you've got this. Uh, it doesn't work like that. And, and, and so you're, you're living with people that, that bring up really petty things in yourself, you know. Or you you you've got kind of a you you have certain blinds we all have these various blind spots where we can't see uh things and and then suddenly you, you people are acting in the way you can't understand and and you get confused by it but then as you keep reflecting uh then you you keep you, you keep trusting in the ability to keep reflect watching and learning, rather than just seeing the, like the the worldly ideas that that their that's their fault. So if you get like a, you know, where where it's easy to where before my mind would say, well, he's not really monastic type, <laughs> or something like this. You know, here I'm the, the you know I'm the one that knows everything. <laughs> he's not really the monastic type, or. Uh, and I start, you know, seeing things from from my own, you know, that because maybe he doesn't agree with me or he he doesn't act like I think monks should or whatever. Then then I uh, then I can see him as as kind of it'd be better if he weren't here. Just get rid of what you don't like or uh, what threatens you or irritates you. Or I learned that that doesn't work. I never felt I could do that. I didn't feel, you know, that I should dismiss somebody just because I didn't like them. So, 
So it's learning to to include. And so in saying my monastic experience is like an expansion all the time. You, you, where before what I could accept was quite narrow and then over the years I learned to expand <laughs> and include, which is a good thing. Where, where I realized before my, 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 what I accepted, what I could accept and allow was, was quite narrow and, and, uh, and therefore to try to um, just live supporting this narrow view was, was something impossible within this lifestyle. Couldn't do it. So I had to, if I was going to stay in this as a monk, I had to learn to expand it. I had a good example with Lung Po Cha, Ajahn Cha, who, who was very expanded, expansive example of you know, grand uh, openness to to life itself. Yes. You're asking embarrassing questions. <laughs> well, you look at it, and, and it, this is uh, uh, what? That monks can't touch women, so that if, if a woman falls down, you can't help her up. <laughs> so this is uh, this. This is not really a problem. You know what I mean? That you can make this into a problem, but but in terms of, uh, let's say, experience, the idea because of a celibate life, uh, physical contact is is uh, is not allowed because of the the power of that. So, like men touching women is very, very erotic usually, and and especially if you're, if you're, uh, you know, especially in a, in a celibate life where you've you're, you've chosen to refrain from sexual uh, relationship. So your relationship to women isn't isn't a sexual one. Now, when somebody falls down, then, then you have to know your own, you know, that, that is, uh, uh, then you have to know what to do. And, and that is a, a thing that you, you have to decide when it happens, not from a rule. So, I mean, you, ha you have the rule as a general, as a general uh, guideline. You know, it's a guideline, so it's, 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 it stops that from, from patting women, from hugging them, from, from getting intimate, which is very easy to do in, in, in a monastic life where you're, where, say, women coming to a monastery, uh, 
and and uh, asking for spiritual guidance, uh, you know the 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 kind of teachings and the relationships get quite you know, get quite uh, tender because you're you're relating to each other in very in very beautiful kind of terms, and and then when it gets personal and physical, then it then it it gets lost. So I don't know how many, you know, spiritual gurus have have uh, really made some drastic mistakes through through not having such a rule. So then, but then in terms of the actual. Uh, experience when somebody like like uh, the, the rule if your mother falls into the river <laughs> you're allowed to throw your chi your robe in try to tell her to catch hold of the end of that <laughs> so it's uh, it's you know this is uh, this has never been a problem actually so but uh, and any monk I've ever known, so, but it, I mean, but it is a kind of absurdity. But it, I mean that in itself. But the the so, but this is where you know the whole point of the meditation is to learn is my is sati and panya or mindfulness and wisdom. So if you develop that, then you know what to do in, when particular situations arise. Like they say, uh, the, the old question, what would you do because we're non-violent? And, and so then we, they say we're pacifists. So then the idea of a pacifist is that you shouldn't have any, do anything violent ever. Uh, and that's the ideal. So that they, you know, the old in America, the conscientious objectors. They used to be have to go before a tribunal where they were asked, you know, what would you do if a maniac attacked your mother? So, you know, and you say, you're, you're, this is a very loaded question. You know, your mother is somebody you love and protect. Maniac is a completely wild, uh, irresponsible, dangerous unpredictable uh, monster and so you know you say she, well I, I'm a pacifist I just you know, wouldn't do anything and you're a coward <laughs> <laughs> you mean you'd let, let this mountain maniac attack your mother and make you feel like you're the lowest of the low and if you said well I'd, I'd Punch him in the nose, then they say you're not a pacifist. <laughs> but so this is; these are the kind of of uh, scenarios that you can create in your mind. But but in terms of of karma, when karma ripens, you know, when you you're if you're giving a, a particular instance like a, a maniac attacking your mother, there could be many other factors present, like. Your mother could be a, a karate expert, <laughs> or <laughs> the maniac could have a heart attack just at the time he's about ready to attack, or the sheriff and the posse might be just at the door, <laughs> or the chandelier might fall on the maniac's head. 
you know, so I mean, why not bring in all those other possibilities where you might just be able to stand there and let your mother knock him out with a karate chop. And <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is being facetious, but it's, it's also making a point of, of uh, that, that you don't know. All you know is you don't know. The factors at this moment say, mother's not here, maniac's not here, so I don't know what I would do. But if I'm, if I'm developing mindfulness now, if I'm mindful now, if I really trust in developing sati and panya, then I'd know what to do if, if such conditions arose where a maniac was attacking my mother. And I'd trust that. And I wouldn't tell you, I don't know what it would do, but I'd know what to do at that time. I trust in that. And I'd do the right thing, both for the welfare of my mother and the maniac. You see, this is, this is where the ideal, like being a, a pacifist as an ideal, doesn't work. Because you're attaching to an ideal of non-violence. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're always creating kind of moral dilemmas for yourself because of that. Uh, uh, but because, uh, you know, the attachment to the ideal. Where if you're, so, so even though the ideal is, is a beautiful ideal and certainly admirable, the fact that it isn't, uh, that, that it isn't, including mindfulness and wisdom means that you're going to create, you're going to make life incredibly difficult for yourself through creating endless moral dilemmas around life. So, in, uh, this is where the Buddha emphasized this mindfulness. Because when, when you're mindful, then you're really, you're something in you, then there's a wisdom operating in you. And, and a spontaneity and an ability to respond to a situation that right now you wouldn't, you wouldn't think possible. If, say if, say if, if I said to you, what would you do if a, mo if a maniac were to attack your mother? You, you, you wouldn't, you, you, you wouldn't, uh, know what to do either. Try to stop it maybe, or you know, just, just but you, you could see yourself as not being maybe strong enough or uh, whatever to do that or see yourself in terms of, of you know, uh, in, in ways that you, you conceive yourself generally. But in a when that particular situation arises, there's other factors involved, and there's one thing, in danger, there's incredible mindfulness. And when life's in danger, or fraught situation, there's uh, instinctual intelligence operating. And that's very powerful, just the, the uh, life preservation uh, instinct. And there's also maybe Devadas, angels around. Good spirit, things like this, and so like, uh, like uh, uh, Sister Tanasanti, her, you know, she was uh, 
attacked by a bear in the Himalayas before she was a nun. And uh, you can see the scars on her head. And uh, she walked in front of a cave and a, and a bear jumped out and grabbed her. And his, his jaws on her head was about ready to kill her. And she, she just kind of relaxed into this bear and, and just gave up totally. In a, she went to an incredibly peaceful state of mind. And the bear let go and rolled down the hill and ran away. That's never happened to anybody. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you could never, I would never have predicted that, you know, that would never have been a thought in my mind. You know, what would you do if a bear attacked you? <laughs> but obviously she, you know, an intuitive sense was working in her, some strong intuitive sense. She knew exactly what to do, intuitively, which if she'd thought about it, she wouldn't have known what to do. She would have just been scared out of her wits. And when you're scared out of your wits, then you're creating the very conditions where the bear wants to hurt you, like fear and things like that, aversion. Uh, that those, are, those are the very conditions that stimulate murder. And, and killing. So I asked her, well, how did, how did you know how to do that? She said, it just happened, you know. It, 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 obviously, David was helping her or something. You know, that wasn't her time to die. Or, you know, there's so many other explanations that, you know, this is what you can't really know. And so, rather than try to prepare yourself for every contingency that you can imagine, uh, is, it's more useful to develop mindfulness so that even in the, in the kind of ordinariness of life, which is most of our life, is not being attacked by a bear or be a maniac, but it's like sitting here, walking, eating food and going to the supermarket and putting on your clothes and taking a bath. And all <laughs> <laughs> the ordinary stuff of life is developing mindfulness around the the ordinariness will allow that then when when the extremities come you you will be you will know what to do. I trust that completely I, whatever happens to me, I trust that you know my intention as a monk not to harm. And um, you know to to uh, live by the, the monastic code, but then in particular situations, I have to trust my own spontaneity. So I think, yes, one more.
Well, it, it's like be just beginning to to uh, recognize that. Like, like in the the Buddha's uh, uh, contemplation on suffering, uh, you you actually begin to see that um, you you're suffering a lot from the attachment, and and then it, it through that you begin to see realize the way of letting go, which is not like getting rid of them, but it's it's uh, letting go of this of uh, this desire to possess. And when that's gone, then then your relationships are, are, you know, you still there's love there, but it's not possessed. It's not possession isn't a part of it anymore. So it, it's through understanding the suffering you create. Like I see, you know, when because this is the the kind of profundity of Buddhist teaching is, is the emphasis on suffering because it's um, if you really use that uh, as a as the kind of key to the door then you begin to really see how you know how much you do suffer around uh, you know things that you're about being attached to your children or people or or your position or whatever and then as you begin to to recognize that and and see the causes, uh, then you you let you have these insights into letting go of it, letting go of the causes. But if you start holding that I shouldn't be attached to anything, then you're always going to be feeling uh, hopeless because you know you you are attached, and then you say, oh, I shouldn't be attached, and and you just get confused by it. It's not a matter of, of taking some kind of judgmental position. Like trouble with you is you're attached and you shouldn't be, but it's it's using that, learning from that, understanding it, the suffering that comes from attachment. Yes. Well, by by just being aware aware of that feeling, like like you can conceive, uh, like like resentment of of the past. As you as you begin to make this more conscious, and uh, in a in a in a in a kindly way, rather than uh, being aggressive about it. Then, then you begin to just by by admitting, you know, to yourself uh, the the resentment, but mo not kind of believing it anymore, but just listening. More and more, you begin to to release that because, like like you have what you have now are memories, right? That bring up maybe bad bad memories or feelings of resentment, and and those. 
so that, that, that will always be the case. Certain memories will always have this as a result. And so when you're, when you're connecting, say, your relationship with your parents to, to particularly bad memories all the time, then, it, then you can't help but feel anger or resentment. So, so that's why in, in kind of recognizing that, uh, that, that it's merely a habit of, of the mind and to, to make it more conscious and not to think that you shouldn't feel this way. It gets confused, doesn't it? Where you, you want to forgive and then, then you, you, you can't really forgive the way you would like to be able to. And that, so it, it gets confusing. But as you <coughs> trust yourself more to, to just understand that it'll, it'll resolve itself. Like I found, uh, say, uh, like resentment, uh, um, an emotion that, that uh, I had a lot of, but I didn't fully really accept it. Uh, because it was an emotion I could just dismiss. I could say, well, it doesn't matter now, it's over, you know, that was 40 years ago, what difference does it make, you know, get on with life, make very good kind of, uh, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, get on with life, don't make a problem, it's finished, it's the past, and all these kind of reasonable uh, ways of, of dealing with it. But But then, in the process, emotionally I was still I was not, I could be, you know, I could analyze it and I could rationalize it and I could understand it on that level, but I still felt it. You know, that's a, it's an emotional thing. So just trying to, to understand resentment and anger and that over things that have happened in the past is, is uh, you know, you, you're... Uh, you're not really dealing with, with what you're feeling. You're merely maybe judging what you're feeling or explaining it. So, so in terms of like awareness, you're, you're learning to be more aware of what you're actually feeling at that time and, and willing to feel it, not, not criticizing your feeling. It's, it's a non-verbal thing. It's just awareness around feeling or emotional Emotion, emotional energy, and as you just totally accept that more and more, it'll, 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 uh, it, you're actually allowing it to go away, to away from you. So you're not just, you know, dismissing it with your with your thinking mind by saying it doesn't matter, because that's like dismissing it. But it's that the, you've not resolved it because it's an emotion. Emotions are not reasonable, you know, so they're never, you can't explain them, you know. The more you try to explain them, the more, you know, you, far away they, you get from them. So it's just like learning to trust your own awareness of, of emotional energy as it, as it presents itself and accepting it and allowing it to be the way it is. It'll go. You don't have to make it go. It'll go, and then you then you'll feel a sense of of uh, having resolved that.
not through trying to get rid of it, because as soon as you want to get rid of it, then you're back in the desire realm again, saying, I don't want to feel like this, I want it to go away. So then you're, you're kind of resisting and fighting it. But through this awareness practice, you can, you, it'll, it'll you allow the conditions that bring it up to be, to, to grow. I find that very important thing to, to uh, because with emotional habits, it's so baffling. Uh, <laughs> to how to deal with with uh, how to you know because we're n we're not really told how to do it you know a society is such a rational society that it's it's all um, you know rationalizing our emotions and or judging them and and uh, not not. Uh, Really understanding why, why you know, you know, wanting to be a rational, reasonable person, and then you're feeling totally irrational, and you think, you know, I don't like this, and you you hate yourself for feeling like this. At least I would, and so you're always you know, there's a lot of resistance to it. Then this, then through this, uh, like the satipatthana, the foundation of mindfulness, as you can understand that, understand that better than you realize in your, with mindfulness you're letting these things into consciousness and letting them go. And so that's like emotional energies that uh, before you, you just, you, you were identified with but you never knew what to do with them or under, how to understand them but just feel you know, upset by them all the time. But this this will this will if you 